Welcome to Near East PolicyCast, episode 63, for October 7, 2019. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. What is going on in Israeli politics? Two elections this year, both leaving no clear majority and a deadlock parliament, a prime minister facing imminent criminal indictment, Israeli Arab leaders hinting at a willingness to join a Zionist government, and the clock ticking down to a possible third election. This is the weirdest election Israel's ever had. Because you've had back-to-back elections, you've got the overlay of the indictments issue. I would just tell people to fasten your seat belts and put the trade tables in the upright positions, because I think it'll be uh, there might be some turbulence ahead. That was David Mikofsky, Ziegler Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute and Director of the Project on Arab-Israel Relations. David explains what Israel's parties and their leaders want, why Israelis have kept voting without a clear result, and what the future holds for this vital American ally. After this. This is Anna Borshevskaya, the Ira Weiner Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at WashInstitute. I'm speaking today with David Mikofsky, Ziegler Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute and Director of the Project on Arab-Israel Relations. His latest book, co-authored with Ambassador Dennis Ross, is titled Be Strong and of Good Courage, How Israel's Most Important Leaders Shaped Its Destiny. David, welcome back to Near East PolicyCast. Great to be with you, Scott. I should note, first off, that we are speaking early on Thursday morning, D.C. time, October 3rd. So let's start by filling in the scorebook a bit and run through the major parties and their leaders. Where on the ideological spectrum does each party sit, and what is its leader looking for when they're negotiating with the other party leaders about government formation? Let's start with the Likud party and incumbent Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Okay, it's, it's first, it's, it's worth saying for an American audience that the terms left-right in, in the U.S. usually refer to the, like, the role of government in society. Those mm-hmm. on the right want smaller government, those more on the left want larger government. In Israel, left-right, since the 1967 war, uh, where Israel won these territories, basically has been the defining issue of Israeli politics uh, for, you know, about a half a century now. So when they say left-right, it's about, do you trust that you could work on accommodation with Arabs and more specifically, usually Palestinians, uh, when it comes to the West Bank. That's what, it, when it, we talk about a left-right spectrum in Israel, that's kind of the access point is that issue. Um, so what, what's happened in the historically is that the, um, the Israeli political spectrum has shrunk a bit because it was a more vibrant left. I, I wrote a policy watch on this, but with the second intifada, the second Palestinian uprising, 2000, 2004, the Israeli public became disillusioned that negotiations would lead to a transformational deal between Israel and the Palestinians. So it's not as much left-right, it's now center-right. And the center kind of uh, central premise is the, the idea that we might not be able to solve the conflict, but we got to shrink the conflict if for no other reason that the very identity of Israel's is stake as being both a state for the Jewish people and also a democratic state. And if something isn't done, 
you know, this is Israel's very identity is going to be brought into question. That's in many ways very central to the theme of the book that Dennis and I wrote, Be Strong and of Good Courage. The point here is that this center party now is called blue-white, and the right is led by the Likud of Prime Minister Netanyahu. And uh, Netanyahu is, is basically someone who's, who's led the skeptical school that nothing could be really done with the Palestinians, that, uh, okay, we're not going to roll back what has been given to them, uh, to the Palestinian Authority, have in charge of Palestinian cities in the West Bank, but we're not going to give anything new. And the center has tried a little bit to soft sell its fears because it's trying to reach a light right, a moderate right in terms of believing that's where a lot of the public is. And whenever people hear Palestinians, they kind of tune out and say, oh, here we go again. And so the net effect is they made this uh, uh, an election, uh, a referendum on Netanyahu's leadership. But I think in the backdrop, this issue of uh, you got to do something to separate these populations to preserve at least the option in the future for two states, even if you can't do it tomorrow morning, because the gaps between the leaders is just too wide. So we have Likud, and, and Likud has been the, the dominant party in various governing coalitions for years now with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu as prime minister. Is is Netanyahu's primary goal remaining in office or avoiding corruption charges? What's 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 the top of his agenda? He would obviously, you know, put it in, in, in more grand terms, you know, saying, look, I've been Mr. Security for Israel. It's been relatively quiet. I've been the longest serving prime minister, 10 of the uh, 10 years consecutive consecutively, 13 years. If you consider my term in the 90s, they've surpassed Ben Gurion. Um, and, um, therefore I'm just, my job is to keep things quiet. And mm. so, but he'll say, look, I have a fantastic relationship with Donald Trump. Look at the, the, the new sanctions on, on Iran. Look how my relationships really make a difference for Israel. Uh, look at the diplomatic outreach I've done, uh, with Asia, Africa, Latin America, trying to leverage Israeli high tech. Israel's GDP per capita has just surpassed. Uh, Japan. And look how I've actually done this great thing under the radar, but everyone knows it, which is to try to create relationships with Arab states. Uh, They used to have, this used to be a gatekeeper issue to the Palestinians. Unless you saw that, nothing could be done. But the strategic convergence and thwarting Iran's regional aspirations is such that me, me and the Arabs were on the same page, but we can't talk about it publicly and we got to meet in, in quiet. The public does like that. They feel, okay, that's something different. You know, five years ago, you know, that would have been viewed as impossible. So I think to be fair to Netanyahu, he, he does have achievements, but there's no doubt, as you say, Scott, that the corruption issue is the legal cloud that is, is, is kind of holding him back. And um, the, the view of blue and white is, look, you've got three corruption charges against you. When the legal cloud around you is lifted, we're happy to join a unity government with you. But till your legal cloud is lifted, we can't sit with you. And that is driving him crazy in the, in the post-game show here. After the elections, it's like, I'm the great Netanyahu. You know, leaders of all over the world, Putin and, and Trump and all these guys, and I've reached out to all these different people. 
and my own people aren't going to sit with me over an allegation that has not yet been confirmed. Now, as we speak, there's a hearing going on that's a pre-indictment hearing, and some believe that the indictments will drop, will fall, uh, will happen, you know, maybe even at the end of this month or the next, uh, certainly before the end of the calendar year. So there's a, a little disconnect for him that he feels he's achieved this thing for Israel and maybe half the country, you know, appreciates him for it. And the other half, I'd say, look, we're not taking away the good things you've done, but we, we, we have to take corruption seriously. And this is a, this is disqualifying. Well, a name that hasn't come up yet uh, is uh, also on the right, the Israel Baitainu party led by former foreign minister Avigdor Lieberman. What is Lieberman's uh, agenda here. People have referred to him as the kingmaker. He's got eight seats in the new Knesset, which would would basically permit either side to form a government with him on board. Uh, What's well, he looking It's for? fascinating that you ask that because it's really, it's the new kind of X factor in Israeli politics is Lieberman, is that he was someone who was staunchly on the right for all these years. He had a love-hate relationship with Netanyahu. He was once Netanyahu's chief of staff, and he became his rival, and they don't trust each other, but yet they work together. And he's very enigmatic, and he could be mercurial. He's quit a lot of the governments he's joined. But what's happened now is that basically he's trying to rebrand his party. Uh, he's been the immigrants' party for you know 30 years uh, with the Russian, or close to 30 years, with the Russian immigration coming at the end of the Cold War, 1989 to 1992, let's say. And over a million people came, and he seized it fairly early. He identified this. Someone's got to represent these immigrants. I'll do it. I'm from Moldova. I speak Russian. And uh, he represented them. There's only one problem, Scott, is that 30 years later, the children of the people who came to Israel from the former Soviet Union, their kids don't feel like they're Russian. They feel like they're Israelis. Mm -hmm. They've been here. It's you know, it's hard to be an immigrants party for thirty years when the, when the immigration was was all basically front loaded, you know, thirty years ago. So he's trying to rebrand, and he has found something that he never really tapped into before, and that is something the Israeli people like. That he's not just a sectoral party, but now he is the defender of kind of uh, more secular values against the encroachments of the disproportional influence of the ultra-Orthodox and the settlers. And so even though he himself is a settler, by the way, his wife is religious too, but his view is, okay, whatever, I live in the West Bank, but public is tired of all these little parties dominating the landscape. So this is my job. I'm going to unify the country. I'm going to bring the big guys together, the blue and white, the Likud. And then, plus me, he's the only little party allowed. And I'm going to create this, I'm going to be the impresario of this grand coalition that is going to restore a sense of balance to Israel, where the, the small parties don't have disproportionate control. And he suddenly zoomed up from five to eight, but eight is enough to be, as you call it, a kingmaker or a king slayer. So he's pushing this idea of a unity government. But his version of unity government, and actually it's very similar to the blue and white version too, which is, you know, keep with the big parties and don't let the ultra-Orthodox or the settlers have disproportionate influence. 
So, but he's trying, he promised, and, and his whole persona is, I do what I say I'm going to do. So Netanyahu was meeting him today, I met him today, but, you know, I think there's no way he goes with the right because he'd be finished. That, you know, that would be a repudiation of this whole, you know, renew, you know, new persona of him as the unifier. And now suddenly he's being showered mm -hmm. by compliments. The media sees him positively. He's not used to this, but I think he enjoys every minute of it. And and kind of rounding out the the major parties here, we've then got back in the center the newish party formed in time for the first round of elections uh, earlier this year, Blue and White, which uh, has kind of an all star uh, leadership team drawn from uh, former top IDF officials, but the the uh, title of head of the party and candidate for prime minister there is former IDF chief of staff Benny Gantz. What is Gantz yeah, so looking Blue for? Blue and white is, in a, some way, having three chiefs of staff. I think for Americans, they hear military, they must think, oh, he must be military, must equal militaristic, or they must be right wing. It's not the case in Israel. Usually the people who get to the top in the military system are arch pragmatists. They know the real problems of the country. They want to find an accommodation with the Palestinians. I don't think it's, um, you know, it's a surprise. A guy like Yitzhak Rabin came from the military, the chief of staff. Uh, Ehud mm -hmm. Barak, chief of staff, the military. The, the center uh, tends to attract the military people because the people want to know, you want me to make concessions to the Palestinians? The public wants to know just one thing. Is it safe? The general says it's safe. There's mm -hmm. a chance they'll listen. If you look at the only time the Likud has lost, like an, as you pointed out correctly, I mean, they've dominated Israeli politics in 42 years, according to my calculations, the Likud has held the prime minister uh, portfolio for 32 of the 42. And basically, almost the only other time the, that the, the non-Likud wins is the military guys. The military guys are centrist, and their view is Israel's got to keep its democratic and Jewish character and has got to find some accommodation with the Palestinians. Gantz is kind of a throwback to the old Israel, um, a kind of a guy who looks like he's out of central casting, has a kind of, a, I don't know if you call him a Clint Eastwood look, but he um, is somebody who kind of projects a, a steadiness, an inner calm, a certain modesty to him that the Israeli public uh, takes to and sees it as somewhat an antidote an antidote to what's what's the glitziness of, of the current leadership. So, you know, I think it helped him and he got um, 35 seats. Um, last time they were tied uh, party to party 35, uh, them and the Likud. This time they were uh, 33 and Likud was 32. But of course, as you know, it doesn't matter just about the head to head. It's the, it's the block to block. It's the cluster, the coalition of parties to get to the magic number. The magic number you want to get to is 61 because you've got to maintain in a parliamentary system like Israel a bare majority in the 120-member parliament known as the Knesset. So nobody's got 61 here between the two big blocks, Blue and Likud. Uh, but Gantz is, 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 you know, I think is two ahead. But it's complex because at 57 to 55, if you, if you say the all blue and white and, um, and, uh, and Likud, and the, and the remainder is, is Lieberman, as you point out, is holds the balance of power. But what's complicated is that the Arab parties who don't like Netanyahu, 
have mixed feelings. They don't really love Gantz and Blue and White. And I, I, don't, I think it goes beyond the individuals. I think for them, the idea of you're going to be in a, in, a, in, a, in a cabinet that might vote on military operations against fellow Arabs, that's a little hard to do. So you know what? Maybe we'll support the guy, but we're not going to do it from inside the cabinet room. We could stay outside, uh, you know, don't vote no confidence and bring him down. Again, for Americans, it's all hard to understand because we're used to a presidential system with, unless the president is impeached, I don't want to get into the whole current controversy. You get four years. In Israel, you get a week uh, until the next no confidence vote. So you always got to keep your 61. So what looks like 57, 55, the president of Israel, Reuven Rivlin, who decides who gets a shot to cobble together a government. He said, okay, it's 57-55, but in a certain way it isn't, because it's really 55-44, because these Arab parties are saying they're not going to join. They're 13 of the 57. So that's why it's a little more complex, but Netanyahu is not used to falling so short himself. He usually is able to cobble together the, over the 61, but that's partly because he's always had Lieberman and to put him over the top, and uh, now he doesn't. So on on the uh, the joint list, um, uh, which is uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, Ayman Ode is effectively kind of acting as the 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 face of those thirteen uh, members of Knesset. They are hesitant to sit in government, but they might be willing to vote to maintain a government that they're not part of if it's not Netanyahu. Exactly, that's what we call the Rabin uh, paradigm. You know, between 92 and 95, to be technical, I think they've extended when Paris followed him after the assassination, 95, 96. And the, the paradigm is this. Look, it's too hot for us to handle as Arabs to join a Zionist government. But we won't let you fall, okay? This is a security. you got a security net with us. Uh, because we understand what's at stake. We're not stupid. And we know that, um, that also Rabin was putting more money into the Arab sector than any other prime minister. So I wouldn't be surprised if the net effect is if somehow in the end um, there is a non-Likud government, it's partly because the, the Ayman Ode uh, is able to, to, to revive the Rabin paradigm uh, and support the government from the outside. And I think it comes at a, a time of fascinating generational shift in the Arab-Israeli sector that... The, the younger Arab Israelis from polling data, what we're seeing is they're getting a little impatient with their leaders, that, that the last, that the older generation just rails against, uh, you, know, uh, you know, Israel, and there's not doing enough on the Palestinians. They go, okay, that's nice, but that's 5% of your job. 95% of your job should be providing services to the Arab sector inside Israel and integrating us more. 60%, I just saw a number, 61, said they, they, they really, they're very proud to be Israelis. So I, I think that the fact that Oda gave an interview before the election saying, I wouldn't rule out joining in it mm -hmm. a Zionist government. Now he put forward conditions he knew couldn't be met because there was also division within the parties. It's actually, a, it's called joint list. It's really like four different parties. And it was kind of controversial that he gave it but I think it was somewhat a, a recognition of the younger Israeli Arabs. Look, we're listening to you. We hear you. And we know that you're getting a little tired of us. And, um, and so you want to see more kind of uh, results-oriented 
governance. I mean, now, for example, there's a whole um, strike in the Israeli Arab sector about violence in the Arab-Israeli sector on crime. Nothing to do with the Israeli-Palestinian issue, not terrorism in any classic sense. And, um, you know, they want their, it's a, it's a demonstration against the authorities, but I think it's a demonstration against their own people. Like, where are you guys? We want more services. It's much more local than it used to be. So it's, it's and fascinating. It, it seems that the main barrier to forming either a right-wing government led by Likud with, uh, with, with, uh, Yisrael Baitanu and, uh, Avigdor Lieberman on board or a national unity government bringing Likud and blue and white together is Netanyahu, who's facing the likelihood of criminal indictment uh, in, in the next few weeks exactly. for three different counts of corruption. So if Netanyahu is a roadblock, why doesn't Likud simply replace him and get on with forming a new government that they can lead? And you're, 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 you're saying it well, which is, look, I mean, if I had to say, David, what are the, the two top barriers? This is the number one barrier, the issue you said. The second barrier is, you know, how broad of a composition of unity will include the ultra-Orthodox and the settlers or not. And I went through the fact that Lieberman mm -hmm. as, and, and the Blue and White are trying to keep them out. Um, and while the Likud sees their, their like an organic political connection to them, it doesn't want to let that go. So that, that's one set. But the bigger issue is the one you just said. Uh, those are the, and these are the two issues. Um, you know, the ultra-Orthodox settlers, one, and um, the subsidiary, and I'd say the number one issue is Netanyahu himself. Look, what's, what's, again, this is hard for Americans to get because we're used to the fact that in, in American politics, it's rare you get two, two bites at the apple. I mean, Abilai Stevenson, I think, was in the 50s, had two bites at the apple, lost both times. He tried a little bit in the 60, but that was it. The Likud and its precursor, the Chayrud, and we write about Begin in our book, it was, there's something about the reverence for the leader is that they've only had four leaders uh, of the right wing, main right wing mm -hmm. block in 70 years. Four leaders. And the, the Labor Party of Israel has had like four leaders in four years. And most other parties do, too. They always change around. But there's something about Likud that they equate this to a loyalty issue. And Netanyahu is under the gun right now in a way he's never been under the gun before. And he keeps saying, like, are you going to allow these guys to do a putsch against me? So he is he's had a mesmerizing kind of impact on them. And he's been able to invoke kind of the Likud way of not, uh, you know, of not changing their leaders. And uh, and he's essentially daring, you know, his rivals within the party. I Look, I went there in July, Scott, and I talked to four Likud ministers and I asked each of them, you know, who who would tell Netanyahu it's time to go if about these corruption. And they were each kind of ashen-faced, uh, and they basically said, anyone who says that is, is committing political suicide. One even invoked the British defense minister, Michael Heseltine, who called on Margaret Thatcher to step down on, in Britain. And he said, mm -hmm. do you notice Heseltine never replaced Thatcher? It was John Major, not Heseltine. So the point is that um, they... Netanyahu knows that his rivals do not want to be viewed as disloyal. Moreover, it's a, they're at a cusp of the succession. And Netanyahu has become a little Middle Eastern in a certain way, which is he doesn't have a vice president. He, uh, 
he could have cultivated someone. He had a few people and he's gotten rid of them. Uh, he's wanted to be the indispensable leader. And the net effect is each one is kind of afraid that uh, if they abandon Netanyahu, the other one of the four or whatever will somehow use it to their advantage in the succession sweepstakes. Their biggest fear is ironic is that they feel that Lieberman is the most Machiavellian and that he will cut a deal with Netanyahu for rotating premiership. And part of the deal will be to fold his immigrants party into Likud because he feels succession will has to be launched within the main party on the right. So this fear of succession, the fear of Netanyahu is actually been immobilizing and has reinforced Netanyahu's grip uh, within the power. Now there's even talk today um, Netanyahu saying, why not have snap primaries? If the, like, the other side thinks there's going to be a push against me, no way. I'll show you none of these guys are going to stand up to me, and I will be reaffirmed. Now, whether he'll carry through with this, we don't know, but you know, you could say, well, if he was so secure, maybe he wouldn't need this. That might be true, too. But it points to the special DNA within the Likud that does not just push their leaders aside and that so, is so kind of as a, a, a cultural time. matter uh the the Likud party just doesn't throw its leaders overboard for political expediency and there isn't an obvious one or two candidates of of the who the next leader uh is likely to be the succession ladder just isn't in place uh that you know we don't look over the horizon and say well obviously after netanyahu it's him or it's right. her Exactly. So walk us through now what happens next. It's been, uh, what, a, a little over a week since uh, President Rivlin gave Netanyahu the first crack at forming a government. How long does he have uh, before he's either got to show his new government or give the mandate back or call new elections? What What's the timeline here and then what comes next? Okay, good question. The, in theory, it's what I call four plus two, four weeks and then you go to Rivlin for an extension for two more. So you get six weeks altogether. The problem is this is the weirdest election Israel's ever had because you've had back-to-back -back elections. You've got the overlay of the indictments issue at the very time that there's the hearing going on against the prime minister. And so, you know, it, it might be, it's like, you know, if Lieberman isn't budging and Blue and White isn't budging, you know, to, to join with Netanyahu, then, you know, I think Bibi's guy said, what are we going to do? Just stare at each other for six weeks? So maybe we'll just like throw in the towel and, let, you know, let's put the monkey on the other side's back. Let them try. Um, so, you know, it could be, look, the one guy who's come up with, a, with, a, with, a, with an out-of-the-box idea in this whole election so far is the president himself, who's a veteran politician. He's kind of everyone's favorite uh, uncle, very he gentle, humorous. He's, uh, so he said, okay, look, okay, what did it pass? Nobody's got 61, okay? So bottom line, what, what, what do you do? And so his idea is what he calls the incapacitation law. Right now, if a prime minister like Sharon happens, happened to Sharon in 2005, you know, he, um, he got a stroke. So for 100 days, there's a successor, Ehud Olmert, who then runs in an election and is reelected on his own. Uh, he's elected on his own, I should say. What Rivlin is suggesting is, let's change the law. We will erase the words 100 days. Uh, so the incapacitation is not limited by 100 days. 
And this is what will happen. We'll have a unit government. I'm going to like kind of lean towards Netanyahu, not Gantz, that Bibi goes first because of this 55-44 thing. But because we get it that the Likud will feel that there's a, the blue and white feels there's a political hygiene issue. So once he is indicted, like I said, which could be certainly within the next three months, at that day, then Bibi still keeps the title and the residence, but he hmm. doesn't have day-to-day authority. And on that day, then Gantz, as the deputy prime minister, becomes the acting prime minister, or whatever the term is precisely. And he stays. And then it would be two years, two years. And then, but this is in the Netanyahu quota, two years. Most people think they need, that the actual trial will take more than two years. But if in the event Netanyahu was cleared, has cleared his name with these three charges within two years, then he gets to come back okay. in as full prime minister. But then Gantz, at, at the, then it becomes halftime of this football game, and, um, and then Gantz becomes the full prime minister the second two years. So in a certain way, I say, well, what you're really saying, David, is that the Rivlin compromise on the symbolism tilts towards Netanyahu, but on the substance really tilts more to Gantz. One of the things they don't like about it on the blue and white side is his view is, let's not try to decide who stays out or not stays out. Let the Likud have a quota of half the ministers and blue and white half the ministers. But whatever you want to do with your quota uh, is up to you. So if you decide of 16 seats on your side, 16 cabinet seats, I want to give eight to the ultra-Orthodox and the settlers then that's your business. And blue and white can't tell you not to. But blue and white said, no, this is unworkable. Because if you look at the Knesset formulate, you know, formation, composition, configuration, what it means is that uh, the right is going to have more power in the Knesset to pass laws once you add them in. So like I said, these are the two points I keep coming back to. What Number one, what's going to be with Bibi? Number two, who is in the government and who is out? You know, do these small parties get in or not? And if it was up to uh, Lieberman and, and Blue and White, they don't get in. So Bibi now turns in the, turns in the title, turns in his card and said to the president, listen, I tried, but they're unreasonable. But I want everyone to know they're unreasonable. And he says, thank you very much. And he gives them, okay, Gantz, your turn. You try now. You get your four plus two, four weeks, two weeks, six weeks altogether. Does he have more of a shot? Because the assumption is that Lieberman and him are more aligned, so that even if you don't have a unity, could it be that either um, either they either they converge on the Rivlin ideas or, or a variation thereof, or could they somehow wean Lieberman away on the blue-white side and say, "Listen, we tried it the, this way with unity, but the gaps are too wide. Lieberman, you join us." We'll have the Arabs supporting us from the outside, like the Rabin paradigm, and we'll add an ultra-Orthodox party. You'll have to hold your nose because we know you don't want to sit with them, but it's better than a third round of elections because then Israel will be an international laughing stock. Right. Well, so final question. In the coming days and, and weeks, looks like we've got, uh, what, about 10 more weeks potentially on the on the calendar of 
permission to form a government. What signs should Americans look for to indicate which way things are going, whether a government is becoming more likely to form or whether a third round of elections is going to be on the horizon? What what are what are the preview uh, signs? What are, what are the, the tip offs going to be? I think that the rivaling idea of incapacitation is going to be is going to be where the center of political gravity is. There's going to be a question of, you know, what is legit, what is reasonable, what is not reasonable. Uh, I wonder if they could split the Rivlin ideas in half and say, look, we agree with Rivlin on his, uh, you know, two plus two of rotation, but we don't agree with him on the quota system of putting in the ultra-Orthodox and the settlers. So I would I would look at if 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 the Rivlin ideas gain steam. And I would look at the fact today it just happened that Lapid, who is the, the partner of uh, Gantz in Blue and White, um, Bibi's kind of using him as a battering ram. He sees him as more liberal. And he said, of course, Blue and White is against. He said, Gantz is a great guy. I could do a deal with him in five seconds. But he doesn't use those words, but I could do a deal with him. But Lapid, no, he's got a rotation deal with Lapid and Therefore, if there was, you can't do a rotation of a rotation. It's one thing to have, you know, Netanyahu Gantz, but he's holding it up for personal reasons because he wants the rotation deal. So Lapid said, you know what? No, I don't. And this morning, he just gave in on rotation. So I think that that's an interesting sign uh, that he's, they're making it a little harder for Netanyahu. It'll be also interesting, Scott, to see to what extent does this hearing that can go on until Monday, Tuesday, does this hearing create a sense of public momentum or do people feel it's baked in the cake? Ah, it was all behind closed doors anyway. So we really don't know what's going on between Netanyahu's lawyers and the state attorney because uh, they have to put together the, uh, the office. There's like 37 lawyers there uh, from both sides. So total, we don't really know. Uh, what Gantz is hoping for is that there's a kind of political momentum that people say, enough, Bibi, enough, enough. You know, this, this, this can't go on like this. But, or does it, or does the Netanyahu narrative win out, which is, I'm the reasonable one and Gantz is not uh, because I'm for unity. We all use the same words, unity, but we mean different things. And I think that, you know, it's a, it's a battle for the public narrative, in my view, if people think is the is the corruption proceeding a game changer, it's hard when it's all behind closed doors that it leads to people saying it's enough, or the people say baked in the cake. We know about all these allegations. Uh, it's kind of like the Mueller report is that people know it's out there, but by the time the, the actual report came out, people thought, okay, I know it already. So I don't know, you know, how the the battle for the narrative on what's legitimate and what isn't legitimate. But I would look at the corruption hearings as, as a key moment, and I would look to see if the Rivlin ideas on incapacity, which is very, a very creative idea, is used, gains more, more, more steam, and uh, then they have to deal with the other issue, which is what to do with the ultra-Orthodox and the settlers. So, you know, it, you know it's, it's, it's not going to be boring. And then people wondering Lieberman, they feel he's enigmatic, he's unpredictable. So, you know, we'll have to see. I would just tell people to fasten your seat belts and put the tray tables in the upright positions. And I think it'll be, uh, there might be some turbulence ahead. Sounds like we might be headed for a rough landing then. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us. I've, I've been speaking today with David Mikofsky. He is the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute and Director of the Project on Arab-Israel Relations. He has a new book, which is out now, Be Strong and of Good Courage, How Israel's Most Important Leaders Shaped Its Destiny, co-authored with Ambassador Dennis Ross. David, thank you again for joining us today. Delighted. Anytime, Scott. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Please like and rate this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to it to help others find Near East PolicyCast. Cast.